So last week I asked the question, what are we to do in this time of life? And I'm really grateful this last week for the presidential debate because the presidential debate reinforced the whole point of my sermon last week. You can only find hope in Jesus Christ and his reign and rule, right? So here we are, we're gathered together again, and we want to to think about together, what are we really to do? What does that look like on a daily basis for us? And so let's look again at the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 29. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to read again what we read last week, starting in verse 4. I'll kind of remind you of what we talked through last week, and we'll get to verse 10, and that's where we'll pick up some new, some new verses there, 10 through 14. So Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 4. Jeremiah is writing a letter sent to the people in Babylon living there as exiles. Verse 4 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So remember, the first thing we need to remember is that the exiles living in Babylon are there because God sent them there. They are living where they live, when they live, because it was the plan of God. And God could be trusted in what God was doing. And so here we are as God's people, where we live, when we live, and we are living effectively as exiles right here in our nation because we as the church are citizens of the kingdom of God. And so we see that parallel there. Verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease. So he admonishes the family. Though you're living in Babylon as exiles, don't act like it doesn't matter how you live there. No, have a family, have lots of kids, multiply, and do family as my people because you live where I want you to live right now to increase, not decrease. And we talked about the importance of the family of God doing family well, which includes having kids or doing foster care or adoption and doing family in a way that we're making a mark here in our city, in our nation for the kingdom of God as citizens of this nation. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare, in its welfare, you will have welfare. God admonishes his people living in Babylon. Seek out the welfare of Babylon. Now, Babylon is not a great place for them to be living. And yet God says, this is my plan for you. And what I want you to do while you live there is be my people so that place improves, so that place gets better. Because if that place gets better, that's better for you being my people. So seek the welfare of that city. And we need to be, as the people of God, living where we live, when we live, a people who seeks the welfare of our nation. We need to pray for our nation. We need to do whatever we can, loving and serving and standing for the truth that is for the benefit of our nation. Notice here in verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. God does not want his people to be informed about their lives or the conditions in which they live 
by any other voice, any other source other than his word and his truth. We need to be careful as the people of God that we are secured in the hope of God by knowing the word of God. Very hard for us to remain hopeful with all the voices that are coming at us as the people of God unless we are listening to the voice of God through the word of God. Now we get to verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. So the people of God living in Babylon as exiles were given a promise that God was going to come and God was going to take them back home to the land that he promised them. The reason God reminded them of what he was going to do and made that promise abundantly clear is because God intended for that promise to shape everything they do while they lived in Babylon. That they would know God's coming again and he is going to take us home. And so we're living where we live, when we live, in light of the fact that we know God's coming and he's going to take us home. Now, we as the church have been given an even better promise. Do you realize that? We've not been given a promise to take us just back to a land, but we've been promised a promise that God is going to send Jesus Christ and he is going to restore his kingdom on the earth and that's all there will be. The perfect, undying, no sorrow, no pain, no brokenness, no sin, no death, perfect kingdom of God, reign and rule by Jesus Christ forever and he's going to rescue the church and bring us into his kingdom. That is our promise. We are living here right now in this time and this day as exiles, but we are a people with promise, and the promise is that Jesus Christ is coming again. He's going to establish his kingdom, and that promise ought to shape everything we are as citizens in this nation who are primarily understanding the promise of God as it relates to our citizenship in the kingdom of God. It ought to shape everything we are. When Jesus Christ was ascended, went back to be with the Father's disciples, watched him ascend into heaven, angels came and said to those guys, said, hey guys, he's coming back just like you saw him leave. Implication, get out there and be the citizens of the kingdom of God for the sake of this world until he gets back. That's the implication. We have the same promise. Jesus Christ is coming. And that ought to rule and govern everything that we are, everything we think. You know, when you think about the presidential election coming up, Jesus is not sitting around wondering who he should vote for. He's not looking at this election the way we are. 
We're debating and contemplating and having a tough time with these decisions. Jesus is not sitting around wondering who should get his vote. He is not picking a side. He is not for the Republicans. He is not for the Democrats. Jesus Christ rules and reigns as the king of all kings, the ruler of all lands. He owns it all. He has all authority. And he is the one who is coming back to establish his kingdom on the earth forever. And that promise should shape everything we do, everything we think, every way we act on a daily basis. I love how the book of Romans states it. Romans chapter 13. Flip over to Romans chapter 13 with me, verse 11. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. Now, verse 10 talks about love, and then he says, do this, so loving people, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not carousing in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. That is the admonition given to a people who understand they're citizens of the kingdom of God above any other citizenship and the promises of our king shape how we live every single day. The promises of God are intended to shape our lives as we live as citizens of this nation. I love the fact that God has granted nations authority God has done that. He has given his people authority. So we have a government that has been given authority by God. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 13 that every authority has been established by God, exists because he did it. He owns the world. You think about the United States. The land that we call the United States is governed by our government, led by our president. But listen, our nation doesn't own the land. God is the owner of everything we are as a nation. You can say that about every nation. And what God has done is he has lent his authority to the nation to govern itself. And the way a nation governs itself, that nation is accountable before God for that government. It's a, an authority that's borrowed and not all nations respond to the accountability of God's given authority to that nation. But every nation's accountable for how they use the authority that belongs to God that he gave that nation's governing authority. The government's not the only authority that we experience on a regular basis. We experience the authority of our own families. Every family has an authority structure. Every family operates as an authority in the nation we live. And every family's been given authority by God. No family has its authority independent of God. It's a gift from God. And we are accountable for how we live out that authority. 
Every single person in this room has authority as an individual. We have a, a sense of personal autonomy and how we use that authority personally. We are accountable for that before God because God has all the authority. He's just given us authority to exercise in response to who he is. So every single person has a degree of authority been given by God for which you're accountable. You know, of all the authorities that exist in our nation, there is one that is more significant and more powerful than any other authority. Do you know what it is? It's the authority of the church. Jesus says that the church, his kingdom, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you know it does not matter what our nation does with its authority? It does not prevent the church from being the church given God's authority to make disciples. As important as it is for us to have a governing authority that respects what God has done and stewards well the given authority, it is not more important than what the church does with the authority God has given the church to make disciples of all nations. The most important thing that you and I can do is see our authority as the church under this gracious gift of God, knowing we've been planted right here when we live, where we live, to be a light in the darkness. We need to be a people who understand that God has granted us authority as the church it's more significant than any other authority that's exercised in our nation. There's no other authority that's been given the opportunity that you and I have been given to shape the welfare of a nation as the church of the living God. That's who we are. Are we allowing our citizenship in the kingdom of God to shape everything? we do and say are we allowing that to happen how is this shaping your heart well that begs a question I mean before I go one step further in this sermon you've got to answer the question are you in fact a citizen of the kingdom of God Did you know that about 75% of people in the United States today self-identify as Christian? 75% people walking down the street will say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And I want to kindly remind you that citizenship in this nation does not equate to citizenship in the kingdom of God. The citizens of the kingdom of God certainly engage in the local church in obedience to God's word. We strive to be functioning members of a local church where we're walking together in Christ in community, but please do not mistake your involvement in the local church as how you become a citizen of the kingdom of God. You don't become a citizen of the kingdom of God by joining and being a part of a local church. And as great as it was to see the baptism today, Blake's baptism, I want you to know, believers and followers of Jesus Christ, members of the kingdom of God, do get baptized to public, publicly proclaim their allegiance to Jesus Christ. But getting baptized does not make you a member of the kingdom of God. That's not how you become citizens of the kingdom of God. The fact that your parents identified as Christians. I hear people say this to me. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. 
Why are you a Christian? How do you know you're a Christian? My parents are Christians. I raised in the church. I'm a Christian. Let me just tell you, it doesn't matter if your parents are Christians or not. That does not give you citizenship in the kingdom of God. There is a way to become a citizen of the kingdom of God, and it is exclusive. It's exclusive. The only way to become a member of the, citizen, of the kingdom of God, a citizen of the kingdom of God, is to realize that when God granted you your personal authority, the autonomy that you exercise in making your decisions, choosing how to live your life, how to do relationships, how to do what you do every single day, that you took that authority and you used it for yourself instead of to bring glory to God in all that you do. Every single one of us took the authority that we had and we turned against God and we have not pleased him in all we've done. We have fallen short of his intentions for our lives. We have sinned. The Bible calls that sin against God. We have lived our lives our own way. And because of that, we have experienced the consequences of our sin, which is death and separation from God. And so we are not citizens of the kingdom of God by virtue of our own abuse of the authority God gave us. So we're outside looking in. But God in his great mercy sent Jesus Christ, his son, to live a perfect life, to fulfill every degree of the law so that we might see what it looks like to fulfill God's expectations. And then Jesus Christ, who, bore, who, who had no sin to his account, became our sin. So every violation of God's expectations for you, Jesus Christ took on himself. He became sin and then he died on the cross for your sin and my sin so that every single sin we've ever committed when we trust in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and washed clean because Jesus Christ didn't stay in the grave. He rose out of the grave alive, overcoming death and sin so that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is forgiven, receives the promise of eternal life that Jesus Christ will return and establish his kingdom and rescue his church. That's the only way you become a citizen of the kingdom of God. If you've never made that decision to trust Jesus Christ with your life, to allow him to purchase you, to redeem you back into the kingdom of God by his blood shed for you, today you need to make that decision because there is no way to enter the kingdom of God except through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you make that decision, then that decision shapes how you live the rest of your life, where you live, when you live. Think about the people of God in Babylon. When they got the letter from Jeremiah, do you know what they had in their hands? They had a countdown. 70 years, God's coming. They had a countdown instantly right there in front of them. Now think about what conversations were going on around the dinner table as families that week after they got that letter from Jeremiah. Moms and dads sat down with their kids and said to their kids, we know that in 70 years, God's coming. He's going to take us back home. We're not going to see it. We're not going to live that long. But you may. And your children for sure will live that long. 
You need to have kids. You need to tell people about what God's going to do. You need to raise family rights so that you're waiting in expectation of God coming and taking us back home because he's coming. And we know it's going to happen in 70 years. Don't you know that shaped how they began to live their lives and think about the future and think about where they were living in Babylon and think about the difficulty that they faced? They knew there was an end coming where God would take them back to their home. Think of what it had been like at year 35. Halfway there, around the dinner table one night, kids, I remember when my mom and dad set me down just as a young kid 35 years ago, and they told me there was a day coming when God was going to come and he's going to take us back home. We're halfway there. You're going to see it in your lifetime. Your kids are going to be walking those steps back home. Don't give up. You keep being faithful. We have a promise, and we're going home. Can you imagine? What would have been like at year 65? I mean, wouldn't they be counting down every minute, every month, every year? We're there. We're five years away. We are all going back, sitting with their kids. I remember my grandparents telling me about this day, and now our whole family in just five years is going back home because God made a promise, a good word to his people. Though he sent us into exile, he wanted us to prosper here for the welfare of this nation so that they might see the glory of God, but he's taking us home in just five years. Shouldn't that have shaped everything, who they were, what they did? Think about what it would be like on day, you know, year 69, 364 days. It's like, we're going home tomorrow. Don't you know their life would look like that? They would shape everything they're doing. You know what Jesus Christ tells us? He says, my return is coming. It'll be like a thief in the night. You better, you better be eagerly awaiting for me as if I'm coming back today. Because I'm coming back. I'm going to stay good to my promise. My good word will be fulfilled in you. You ought to be a people who are eagerly awaiting my return. Because I'm coming back. And it'll be just like it's tomorrow. Live ready. Do, do you know this countdown that we're on is to be understood as a one-day countdown? We should be living like he's coming back tomorrow. Every single day of our lives. You know, that gives us a unique ability to seek the welfare of our city. Think about that. If you seek the welfare of others around you, do you know what you're going to have to do? Sacrifice your time. Sacrifice your resources. Sacrifice your energy. You're going to have to give. You're going to have to decide to love. You're going to have to decide to be concerned about someone else more than you're concerned about yourself. Do you know why we can do that? you know why we, of all people on the face of the earth, can genuinely seek the welfare of other people so that they're loved and served and given to? Because we, the church, know the promise of Jesus Christ that we're on a countdown, and though we give up our personal welfare for the welfare of our city, we know that the welfare of Jesus Christ and his kingdom is on its way. We may sacrifice now, but we can count it joy in seeking the welfare of those around us because we know that the welfare of Jesus is coming. You know, one of the greatest ways that you and I can seek the welfare of other people in our lives is simply by having conversations with them. I suspect that this morning, 
you probably ask some people this question. Hey, how's it going? Anybody do that today? We ask that question a lot, right? Here's the thing. We ask it so often that you can literally be walking by someone and say, hey, how's it going? They say, man, I'm doing terrible. My wife just died and things are off. Hey, good to see you. Cool, man. Isn't that how we do a lot of times? Whatever people say about the question, how's it going, we oftentimes just are not really asking the question. It's like just routine. But I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that if we'll just ask the question, hey, how's it going? No, really, how's it going? And then we decide we want to really listen and seek the welfare of someone else. And we hear what they're saying. You know what we're going to hear? I was at a meeting a couple weeks ago, and they said that when people are in conversation during the day, that the average person in our area is having somewhere in the neighborhood of 27 conversations with other people where topics of brokenness come up. Like this week, if you say to somebody, hey, how's it going? There's a good chance that somebody in your life is going to say, well, I'm doing great, but I cannot stand what's happening in the presidential race. I'm scared for our nation. I'm scared for my kids and their kids. I'm nervous about what this means. People are going to talk about brokenness. You just ask them about how they're they're really doing, and you show genuine concern and interest for their welfare. They're going to begin, a lot of people are going to begin to share something about something in their life that's broken. Maybe it's a friend that's ill. Maybe it's a family member that's going through difficulty. Maybe it's something in their own life. Maybe it's financial. They're going to talk about brokenness. And you could just ask the question, hey, you mentioned when I asked you how you're doing this thing you're concerned about. How how does that make you feel? Or how is that impacting your life? You can just listen. And they're done say, hey, is there a way that I can help you? Is there anything I can do that you need? You're just genuinely interacting around something in their life that you've brought out and said, I really care about that. And they've answered those questions. You can just say, would it be okay if right now I just prayed for you? I know it may feel a little bit weird, but I'm just going to real quickly, I'm just going to pray for you. Ask God to work in that area of your life. Just real quickly say, Lord, I'm praying for so-and-so in this area of need that you would bless them, that you'd take care of them. Pray they'd see that you love them and care about them. Jesus' name, amen. And then if you'll just follow up by saying, hey, is there another time where you and I could get together? Because I'd love to share with you a story of hope. Okay, so I heard about this approach to talking to people a couple weeks ago, and this is what I was told. These are people doing it in the Austin and greater Austin area. When people care enough to hear what's going on and then pray for them, that 80% of people who say you can pray for me will go to a follow-up get-together where they hear a story of hope. 80% of people. And then you can just tell them, I want to tell you how I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want to tell you why in a day like this that I still have hope because of the promises of Christ and how they're informing my life and giving me a reason to hang on no matter what. I want to tell you about what it means to follow Christ. We all can do that. Every one of us can have conversations where we tell others about Christ. And that is the greatest way we can seek the welfare of people around us. 
to have conversations about following Christ. Do you know what people tell me is their greatest hindrance to having these kinds of conversations? Fear. People say, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that they don't want to listen. I'm afraid I'll lose a friend. I'm afraid I don't know what to say. I'm afraid to start the conversation and turn it to something about God. I'm afraid they're going to ask me something and the answer I give is going to totally mess them up. There's all kinds of fear. I want you to think about the people of God living in Babylon. They had every reason to be afraid. Think about their ruler. Ungodly. Unfair. Think about their difficulty. And yet, God showed them when he sent that letter, you may think that someone else is ruling in Babylon, but the reality is I'm fully in control. And I'm going to show you how much I'm in control because you're 70, you're coming back home. I got it all worked out. I am in control. It doesn't matter who your leader is. I am the one orchestrating the events of where you live, when you live, so you can be my people. You have nothing to fear. Jesus Christ is our king. He's given us a promise. He's coming again. And it does not matter what we face. It doesn't matter who leads us. It doesn't matter what's going on in our land. Guess what? We have nothing to fear. And we ought to stop being a people who are being afraid or raising our kids in fear. And we ought to instill in our lives, hearts, and our families the promises of God that dispel every reason to be afraid and every reason to stand with hope in the nation we live. We need to be people who stand. I would love for every one of us to have the opportunity to stand in front of tens of thousands of people and lead them to Jesus Christ over the next four years. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome if we could do that? But the reality is we're not going to get to do that. But here's what we can do. We can reach one person. Every single person in this room can strive in their lives to reach one person helping them to love God, to love people, so that they can follow Christ and help others do the very same thing. Every single person in this room can reach one person. So you think about the next four years. We have this election cycle every four years, so we've got the next four years to live as citizens of the kingdom of God right here in this nation. What if over the next four years, just half of the people in our worship services today decided, yes, I want to help one person come to know Christ this next year so that they could help others know Christ. I want to do that for the next four years. That's how I'm going to seek the welfare of the nation. Yes, I'm going to engage as a citizen of this nation. Yes, I'm going to be involved. Yes, I'm going to stand for the truth. Yes, I'm going to vote. I'm going to do all those things. But my citizenship in the kingdom of God is going to be supreme and more significant than anything else. And I'm going to seek the welfare of my nation by leading one person to know Christ in such a way that they can help someone else know Christ at least once this year and once every other of the four years. Did you know that if 700 of us, which is about half of what's here today in our worship services start to finish, if about half of us, 700 of us said, yes, we're going to live that way. At the end of the four-year presidential term, we'll have somewhere in the neighborhood of 40,000 people engaging in following Christ and helping others to follow Christ. Now, I'd say that if we did that, we would make a significant impact on the welfare of our city, wouldn't you? Well, let's just say that one of these people that are going to be elected in November gets reelected, and we deal with four more years of whatever they're going to be giving us. 
Do you know what happens at the end of those four years? We have 2.5 million people engaging and helping people love God, love people, and help others do the same. Do you think that it is the case that God has given authority to the church to impact the welfare of a nation? Absolutely. Know who we are. Know the promises of God and engage in helping someone follow Christ. You can affect not only the nation, but the world. The world. You know, some people call this season election season. And some people are trying to avoid the fact it's election season by calling this season deer season. Here's what I think we ought to call it. The right season for the citizens of the kingdom of God to impact the welfare of our nation. I've had people tell me they think this is the beginning of the end of America, right? I don't think it is, personally. I personally think the church has a great foundation here in our country, and God's not done using our country. I think that's the case for a lot of countries around the world where God is working through the church. I don't think God is done with America. I don't think this is the beginning of the end. But... If it is the beginning of the end, it does not change our opportunity as the church to act as citizens of the kingdom of God. I pray that it's not. I don't think that it is. Regardless, someday Jesus is going to return and he's going to bring an end to every nation and every kingdom except his own. And for that reason, you should be certain of two things today. One, you are a member of you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And two, you are answering the question, what should we do? With the simple approach of leading people to know Jesus Christ. That is the greatest way to spend your life where you live, when you live.